Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back to Murder and Mimosas. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. And today we're going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, because our information is saying that our most of our listeners, well, not most, the highest number of listeners per town is in Atlanta, Georgia. So this is kind of a thank you to you guys. We decided we would um, find a really interesting case in your town so that you could sleep a little worse at night. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Shout out to Atlanta. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so today is a case about a family annihilator turned spree killer. Told you wouldn't be sleeping well. This case It's like a crazy whirlwind of events that takes place, like I said, in Atlanta in 1999. So, you know, it's a little bit ago. You can sleep a little better. Mm -hmm. So before we get into the actual crime, let's talk about the man who committed them, Mark Barton. So Mark was born in Stockbridge, Georgia on April 2nd of 1955. So he's a Georgia native? Well, he was born there and killed there. (laughs) But he was raised in South Carolina. (laughs) He was an only child, and despite not finding any issues in his early childhood, he did begin a drug habit in his teenage years. This did not stop him from attending college, though. He went to the University of South Carolina, and he graduated with a degree in chemistry. So he's, you know, pretty smart, even if he's... So just remember that all you think and you can't get your degree... He did it while on drugs. But we're not saying you should do drugs and no, get your degree. No. Just want no. to clarify. I'm just saying don't let things hold you back. Like drugs. <laughs> and then after graduation, Mark moved back to the state he was born in. But instead of moving to Stockbridge, he moved to Atlanta. So in 1979, Mark married Deborah Spivey. And just under 10 years into their marriage, they had their first child little boy that they named Matthew. And when Matthew was about three, they had their second child, a little girl that they named Michelle. They really like those M&M names, don't they? They do. Which I feel like is probably Mark pushing since he's an M name <laughs> and Deborah's just yeah. kind of left out of it. Um, essentially, they were like the typical white picket fence family. Deborah was described as love, like being a really loving mom. She loved to, you know, loved being a mom. Mark was working as a provider, as a chemist, you know, kind of working his way up. Um, And in doing so, his boss mandated he move to Alabama. So Mark packs up his family and they move. While things may have been good in Atlanta, the move was not a good thing for the Barton family. People around Mark said he became very unreasonably suspicious after the move. He began to constantly accused Deborah of cheating and it wasn't long before Deborah started bringing up divorce when talking to her parents. I don't blame her. That sounds 
really awful, especially after they've been together so long and it just comes out of the blue, like out of nowhere. Yeah. He's like a whole different person after the move. So a friend of Deborah's also said that she remembered remember Deborah mentioning that Mark had been physically abusive with her as well. Things got worse and worse with Mark's behavior. His performance at work obviously began to suffer. And one night, Mark broke into his place of employment to sabotage some data on a computer. Not only was he fired, but also arrested. He had a short stay in jail, but the company chose not to press charges. They just said he could never come back. Of course, this put an even bigger strain on Deborah and Mark's marriage. Well, yeah, that wouldn't help at all. So Deborah is coming to the end of her rope completely understandably. And she finally confronts Mark about him cheating on her. She kind of just turns the tables. And it's not real clear when I was researching if he admitted to the affair he was having but he was, in fact, having an affair with his 20-year-old secretary. Did she know he was married? Oh, she knew. She knew he was married and that they had two kids together. However, like most married men having affairs, he continued to promise to leave his wife for his side girl. For Labor Day weekend, Deborah decides she just needs a break from Mark and plans to take a girl's trip, just her and her mom, they decided to rent a little caravan on a campsite in Cedar Bluff, Alabama. The women planned to stay the whole weekend and then return. However, unlike Mark and Deborah's parent or Mark and Deborah's marriage, Deborah's parents have just a really good solid marriage. They communicate even while apart from each other. So when Deborah's father hasn't heard from his wife or his daughter, he becomes pretty concerned. He doesn't call the police right away thinking maybe there's a logical reason. Maybe they don't have service. They're kind of, you know, off in the campground area. So he decides to call the campground and ask if they can stop by the caravan and check on them. The employee agrees and he goes out and he knocks on the door, but no one answers. Well, that's never a good sign. Indeed, it is not. The police were called out after this because it's concerning to say the least. The police also try knocking with no answer from the women, so they enter the caravan. They come upon both women already dead and decomposing. Along with the bodies was a mess of a scene. There was blood everywhere. It was splattered on the walls. It was splattered on the floors. And, you know, this is a small caravan, so there's just blood galore. This stuck out to the police as an extremely personal crime. There was nothing that seemed to be taken as far as a robbery goes. While it was a bit staged to look like it might be, the women's cash, gun, and jewelry were all still in the caravan. Wait, did you say gun? Yes, Eloise, the mother, had a 32 caliber pistol she carried for defense. It was found sitting on the kitchen counter. I'm not sure if the two were attacked by surprise with no time to get the gun or if the killer set it out in plain sight later. But right away, with Barton's demeanor, when he was told about the death of his wife and mother-in-law, police have suspicions. They do usually suspect the spouse first. Right. And since Bill and Eloise seemed to have no known problems, and Bill was visibly shaken by the death of his wife and daughter, the police shifted their focus a bit more on Mark. I mean, let's face it, 
He's having an affair. His marriage is rocky. His wife has talked to others about divorce. Mark has been sleeping on the couch. Just doesn't look great for him. Between Mark and Bill, Mark has way more motive to kill the two women than Bill does. It does not help the matters that after the funeral, Mark was seen hurrying off to jump in the car of his mistress, Leanne, leaving his kids with his grieving father-in-law. The police really suspected that Mark had something to do with this. Their suspicion deepened when police discovered Mark had taken out a $600,000 life insurance policy on Deborah less than a month before her death. Well, that looks bad for Mark. He just looks a lot worse for this murder now. He does, but the problem the police face is they have no real evidence to tie him to the scene. They have some speculation, but you cannot convict on speculation. Well, we've seen that before, but... You can, but they decided they're not going to try because, you know, double jeopardy. So because of this, the case goes cold. Do you like to hear stories of true crime and the paranormal? Maybe cryptids and urban legends are more of your thing. If it is, then welcome, friends. Come one, come all, and tune in to Scary Tales and Serials. Each week, join Tara and Mara, two best friends, moms, and amateur ghost hunters, as they sit down and cover a true crime case, paranormal tale, urban legend, cryptid, and really anything spooky or that goes bump in the night. We do so with sarcasm and humor to keep the gnarliest of things as light as possible. So join me, Tara, a witty witchy wife and mom of two who embraces the weird and loves to take some deep dives into these cases. I am the paranormal junkie of the bunch here. I do enjoy a good true crime case, especially the really old ones that have all the history attached because, well, I'm the overachiever and I'm going to leave it to the razzle-dazzle of our duo. Here she is. All right, folks. It's Mara. I'm a mom of three crotch critters who are my absolute world. I'm married to essentially the most patient man in the world because he puts up with my shit. I, like Tara, would much rather talk to the unknown because, well, as anybody who has a husband and three kids know, nobody else listens. Bottom line. That's right. Mama ain't easy. We hope you tune in and please tell your friends, but only the ones you truly like, because if you don't like them, we don't like them. Come check us out. We are Scary Tales and Serials, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spreaker, and Anchor. Toodaloo, friends. Toodaloo. In the meantime, in 1995, Mark married Leanne Van Diver. Was this his mistress when he was married to Deborah? Yes, it sure was. This really upset Bill, which was the father-in-law. He tried to get custody of the kids. It failed, though, since Mark was their biological father. He was awarded custody. Bill states later that he was lucky to see his grandkids on their birthdays after that. Mark didn't want him around because he knew Bill thought he was guilty. I would think he was guilty, too. Mark, his new wife, and the two kids move into an apartment in Stockbridge. Mark decided to use his chunk of cash from the life insurance policy to begin day trading. I don't want to say I know much about day trading, because I don't, but I do know that it's risky. It reminds me a little bit of, like, casinos or gambling, right? So you can win big, you can make money fast, 
but you can lose it just as fast. That is true. So Mark would commute half an hour one way almost every day to do the day trading at Momentum Securities. However, all the warnings Mark received about the risks of day trading went in one ear and out the other until he was $100,000 in debt. Of course, Momentum Securities told him that he could no longer trade there. How did he react when they cut him off? He seemed to hide it fairly well that it was a big blow to him, but he just told them that he understood and then he left with no issues. That did not discourage Mark, though, from going across the street to Alltech to begin day trading there. However, they only allowed this to happen because they weren't aware of the debt he racked up across the street. But when Momentum Securities found out that Mark was trading across the street, they called Alltech and spilled the beans. So what do you think they did? I hope they cut him off, but seems like you would also call and do some reference checks first. Well, he had played it off that he was a rookie to day trading, that he didn't yeah. do, he'd never done day trading before. And Alltech was a pretty new company. Okay. They did cut him off, though. But this time it was a bit harder for them to cut him off because Brent Duin, who was one of the owners, had kind of been become friends with Mark. So he had to be the one to deliver the bad news. Did not start Brent from doing what he had to be done, though. Again, Mark seemed to take it in stride, telling Brent he understood and he would come back with the money he owed them one day. Just one day, though. Mm-hmm. Like he, Not like a set date. Uh, a few weeks later, on July 29th of 1999, Mark stopped by Alltech. Britt was in a meeting, but he nicely stepped out of the meeting when he was told that Mark was there because he thought possibly Mark was coming by to drop off all or some of the money he owed. Why do I have the feeling that that was in fact not the case? Uh, because it wasn't. Mark met with Brent in Brent's office, and Mark does pull something out of his pockets, but instead of a check or money that Brent had been hoping for, Mark pulled out two handguns and fired. Brent was shot in the chest, and then Mark walked out of the office. He started shooting at those day trading on the main floor. Mark said, quote, I hope this doesn't ruin your trading day, end quote, as he was shooting at them. One man was shot directly in the head with no time to react and died slumped over in his office chair. When Mark aimed at another Alltech employee, he did not see Brent come around to attempt to tackle him. This heroic move gave many people a chance to flee the office for safety. In return to Mark trying to tackle him, Mark turned around and shot Brent three more times as Brent himself ran for his escape as well. 911 calls came from Alltech employees, but that wasn't the only place calling in. Momentum Securities also had employees calling 911. Were they calling because they could hear shots across the street or something? No, they were calling because before going to Alltech, Mark stopped at Momentum Securities first. So Kevin Dial was an office manager there, and he was killed by Mark with three close-range shots to the chest. Kevin would be one of five at Momentum Securities killed by Mark that day. Another office manager happened to be on vacation that Mark was going for. So while there were five that were 
killed by Mark that day, many, many others would be injured. Despite the many 911 calls, Mark was able to escape Alltech, evading the police in a green minivan. And I don't know why that's funny to me, but just the thought of a green <laughs> minivan fleeing a scene is the last car. I'd be like, that's a killer right there. I'd be like, somebody's soccer mom is late for soccer. Okay. Sorry, it's not funny, but the visual is funny to me. Within a few hours, police would get word that Mark was about 45 minutes away in Ackworth. The police were able to trap Mark in at a shell station, which for those that don't know is a convenience store or gas station. Instead of surrendering to the police, Mark put a Colt 45 to his head and pulled the trigger still in his car. Of course, during the course of all of this mayhem, the police tried to reach out to Leanne and the kids. However, they weren't able to make contact with the family. The police went to the Stockbridge apartment to see if they could speak with anyone that way. Again, no luck with that. This sounds really familiar. Kind of like Deborah. Yes. So they kicked the door in, just like Deborah. The scene in the apartment was heartbreaking. 44-year-old Mark had killed his wife, who was 27, Leanne, by brutally beating her with a hammer, and then he dragged her body and put it in the hallway closet. The children, 11-year-old Matthew and 8-year-old Michelle, were killed in a similar manner as Leanne. Oh my gosh, these poor babies to be brutally killed by someone who's supposed to love and protect you, that's heartbreaking. Yeah, it's, I just can't imagine knowing your father killed, you know, your stepmom. And I wonder, I mean, I'm sure they had to hear about their mom being killed. I wonder if they, you know, at that point are considering, like, my dad is just a killer. You know, like, he had to have killed my mom and my grandma and my stepmom, and now he's coming for me. You know, like, that's just scary. So Mark left a note on the coffee table that police found, and we're going to take a second to hear the authorities read some of that during a press conference. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. is in the master bedroom closet under a blanket. I killed her on Tuesday night. I killed Matthew and Michelle Wednesday night. There may be similarities between these deaths and the death of my first wife, Deborah Spidey. However, I deny killing her and her mother. There is no reason for me to lie now. The victims themselves. I have come to have no hope. I killed the children 
to exchange them for five minutes of pain for a lifetime of pain. I forced myself to do it to keep them from suffering so much later. Obviously, this is, please know that I love Leanne, Matthew, and Michelle with all my heart. If Jehovah is willing, I would like to see them all again in the resurrection to have a second chance. I don't plan to live very much longer, just long enough to kill as many of the people that greedily sought my destruction. And the last sentence states, <clears throat> you should kill me if you can. So that was his letter. What do you think? I'm thinking those poor little babies. They sat there with their stepmom dead in the house a whole day before he even kills them. I mean, they lived it for 24 hours in sheer panic and stress. And he's saying five minutes. I don't know. All of that's crazy. But I just feel horrible that that they even had to live through that. Yeah. And if you weren't quite understanding, because I had to listen to it a couple of times when he said that he was exchanging his kids for five minutes of pain. for, So he was saying, A, that it took him five minutes to kill his kids, which is a long time to die. Um, which I guess if you're beating him with a hammer, it's going to take a minute. But um, he, you know, because he was afraid he would suffer. But the thing that really, really irritated me, I think, was that I'm only going to live long enough to kill the people who led to my demise, but you led to your demise, literally just you. These people didn't take your money. They told you that, you know, risks, and you were like, eh, whatever. And then you continued to do it after finding out the risks. So the only person responsible is you. Nobody else. Um, I do want to point out that in the note, he says that Leanne is in the master bedroom closet covered her the blanket and I said the hall closet he moved her after killing the children and the children if I remember right were in like their beds but I don't think he killed them in their beds he just put them there um and one Michelle had a doll by her and Michael Matthew Matthew had like a little toy truck um each of them had a little toy by their hand um but which I don't know is just sad to me so with Mark dead, he took 12 total other lives with him. Brent Duane miraculously survived, and he got shot multiple times. He did have to have one rib and part of his diaphragm removed, which sounds awful. He did go on to marry, and he had a son. He also wrote a book about his experience called Murder in the Office. You can get that probably on Amazon. I haven't read it yet, but it's one of my... Um, reading list now. While both buildings are still in place where Momentum Securities and Alltech were, both companies ended up disbanding not long after the mass shootings by Mark, despite the fact that the community did all it could to like support them, knowing that you know something awful happened there. Um, though never charged or linked with any like physical evidence. It's still highly suspected that Mark committed the slayings of his first wife and mother-in-law, despite his claims in his letter that he did not. So I want to know what you guys think. Do you think he killed Deborah and Eloise? Or do you believe he left his letter behind with 
the full truth. I don't know. That kind of got me because while I, at this point where you're talking about all the people you're taking out, why, why not just claim them too? Yeah. I don't know. I like kind of go back and forth on it because I'm like, well, maybe he was afraid the letter would be got, you know, like be found somehow before he got to kill all those other people and getting charged with three murders is, um, not as bad as five murders. So in Georgia, he's probably going to end up on death row either way. Yeah. I'm but, you're going down no matter what. So, but he was the only one that benefited from her dying and the large amount of life insurance shot before her death is. And I still think suspicious. Yeah. And I feel like he's really the only one that has motive, you know, especially because it seemed like a really, it seemed like a, crime of passion i guess like there was a lot of rage there and why else would you kill two people if you don't rob them if you're just a stranger i mean it seems strange unless you're a stranger it seems strange to me that you would just kill them and not take anything plus you know his side chick was waiting on him and a divorce can take a while yeah so and she takes part of his money and he wasn't really making any money um because he had lost his job as a chemist from you know breaking in there yeah, that to me is also suspicious that you have no money, but you run out and get life insurance. Yeah, well, you know, all thing is iffy to me. I I think my gut says he did it, but then there's the other part that's like, well, then why wouldn't he just say he did it? I don't know. We don't think like him, so that's Part of me wonders it. if it was like, a you know, that last little um, F you to his father-in-law, like, now people won't think I did it, but I did. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I'm not in his head. I think at the end of the day, I would have probably found him guilty if I was on a jury trial. I guess is the best way to say that. If I had to sit down and go off the speculation they provided, I'd be like, yeah, seems pretty guilty to me. So, um, anyway, that is our Atlanta case. Thank you to Atlanta for being. Such amazing listeners. Also, it sounds like you probably can sleep at night because that man is dead. Yes, um, by his own hand. So there's that. Um, If you need to chill before bed, though, have a mimosa on us because you guys deserve it. You rock. Even if you're not in Atlanta, have a mimosa on us because you're listening to us and we still think you rock. And if you want to see pictures of Mark and Leanne and um, kids, and I'll see if I can find Deborah and Eloise um, and his victims. Then you can check us out on our Instagram, which is murder.mimosas. If you want to hear a clip of this full episode, well, no, a clip from this full episode, um, you can find us on TikTok, which is murder.mimosas, and you can share it with your friends. If you have a case that you would like us to cover, maybe in Atlanta, maybe somewhere else, we're open. Uh, you can send it to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. If you want to interact with us, you could find us at Murder and Mimosas Podcast on Facebook. That is where we both interact the most. And if you would like to read our funny memes, you can find us on Twitter at murder.mimosas. However, they're not daily. We're weekly. At best time, I would say monthly um, on Twitter. But everywhere else, we're pretty um, active at least once a week. And except for Facebook, we're pretty we're pretty responsive on there. So yeah, have a good night. Bye.
Bye. Bye.